Nuclear. Now is it crick or creek? Coyote or coyote? Sometimes I say library. Welcome to You're Saying It Wrong. I'm Fletcher Powell, and each episode we turn to the people who literally wrote the book on this, sister and brother team Kathy and Ross Petrus, and we'll dive into what we get wrong and sometimes what we get right when we try to speak this weird English language. Okay, today uh, I'm afraid that what's going to happen is what we might call around here a little bit of an old-fashioned butt-kicking because we're going to talk Latin, and that's fine. We talk Latin a lot, but we're talking Latin phrases. And a few weeks back, we talked uh, French phrases, and I did all right with that. Latin phrases you would think I might know, but for whatever reason, most of the list of phrases you sent me this week, I don't really know what they are. I've seen them all before, and for another strange reason, I have never bothered to look them up. I am generally a pretty curious person, so I am surprised that I haven't, but I haven't, and I don't know what they mean. Can I throw something in there? That's interesting, Fletcher, because that's very common with these phrases. These are Latin phrases that are essentially relatively commonly used in English. Some of them may be used by more snootier outlets, and some may not be, but these are generally normally used. But we've both found that as well. People use them, and in fact, I think Kathy and I both found ourselves actually probably technically misusing IE for many years. So I think it's a, you're raising a very interesting point. People use them, but sometimes have no idea what they mean. But let's start, okay? I will say that I don't use them unless I know what they mean, so I don't go so far as to misuse them, I don't think. But, uh, but a lot of them I do see, and I haven't bothered to look them up. So that's an interesting point that people just don't tend to. You brought up IE, though, and that's where we want to start. And I can actually do these first couple pretty well. IE, which you will see as those initials IE uh, in a sentence, often in parentheses, uh, I I think, and I'm not positive, but I think stands for id est, and it means that is, right? So uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, something like you're talking about Descartes' famous phrase, cogito ergo sum, i.e., I think, therefore I am. Right. Perfect. Because it, it really means like, yeah, in other words. In effect, more comprehensible to the hearer as well. So in this case you've translated the uh, Latin into English. It was more comprehensible. So that's completely correctly used and completely correctly defined. The other sort of side of this, and, and, and I'll get to why I mean that, or maybe you will, is the abbreviation EG, which we also often see, say, in parentheses. And I, I do not know what EG stands for, but I do know it basically means for example. So you might see something like, Authors of hard-boiled detective fiction, e.g. Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. Wow. Perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. You're better than most people. I I can't tell you, Ross and I both found it um, in in covering these sort of word issues, how often the two of them are used interchangeably, which is incorrect. I I think a lot of people think you chuck e.g. in where i.e. would serve and vice versa, and obviously they're very different. But you're, you're right on the money. But actually, this is an area where I'm going to confess something. When I look at the EG definition, I think sometimes, and I think there is a sort of fine line between the two, EG and IE, I think sometimes I chuck in IE instead of EG incorrectly. And I should know better, but I do. You should. Well, but there's a mnemonic, which is the E. You take the first letter in EG, it's E, obviously. Or you can even say the first two letters, which is egg, and it's egg-zample. 
And for IE, in other words, it starts with an I. That's what I use. And now I'm going to throw out something for the two of you. I was reading an old book in English from, I think, the 17 or 1800s, and they used a word or an abbreviation, which I've seen occasionally, and I happen to know it because of Latin, but V-I-Z. Do you guys know that period? V V I Z. Yes, I do. Um, yeah, that I use. And and it's hold on. This is the the only uh, the shortest the shortest word with with five syllables or something like that. Oh wow! Yeah, that's actually that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> very good, Fletcher. I, m- maybe four syllables, and and I think it's pronounced something like Whittlicket. Yes. <laughs> Wow, Fletcher. This is like a this is a reverse butt kicking. Oh uh, yeah, I love that one. That's a really it is actually though, when you pronounce it, this is gonna be really sort of weird. It does it's sort of like an EG. EG though is is like an example, like you just said of you gave one example of an author, for example. Right. V I Z or Wittelicket include should include most all of the examples, in other words. It's not just it's not just one example. It includes virtually it's namely to wit and it tends to be more inclusive than um, E.G. apparently. But now I'm going to throw a question. How do you pronounce V.I.Z. if you're reading read out aloud to someone? How do you pronounce V.I.Z. when you see it? I would say viz. I have looked this up and I've seen people say you should just pronounce it namely. Wow, Fletcher, you got it again. I Perfect. have to leave now. <laughs> like I quit. Perfect. <laughs> I'm gonna throw well, a tiny well, one, but... little, one little teeny bit of uh, of trivia about too. The reason why there is a Z in there is um, it does stand for the Latin word, uh, uh, the Latin phrase "widi licket," which actually is shorthand for um, "widari licket" is permitted to see. And um, in shorthand, that uh, et part. Has like a has like a an abbreviation which looks sort of it's it looks sort of like a Z, so that's why it became viz. But you're never you're supposed to say namely usually. But anyway, Fletcher, I think you're batting a thousand. <laughs> now that one that one's totally fascinating to me. And that the I E E G thing, I just made an effort at one point to know which was which, and it does grate on me a little bit. Uh, I'm sorry to tell you both when somebody misuses it. Uh, just b- because it confuses me, honestly, for just a split second, I-, I can I can then figure out what they're saying. But you know, uh, I.e. in other words, or that is, e.g. is for example. Let's use them correctly. I agree. We can jump ahead to one I don't exactly know the definition of, but I sort of know how to use. It's ad hoc. Uh, A.D. is the first word, and hoc H.O.C. and I know you can have something like an ad hoc committee, which is sort of a committee set up for for this specific purpose, but I'm not sure exactly what ad hoc itself means. Wow. You got that right, though, in usage. Sweet. It actually, ad hoc in Latin means to this. So, I mean, that's what the literal meaning is. So, in other words, as you said correctly, it's um, specifically concerned with this thing. An ad hoc committee is specifically concerned with this with this some issue or whatever ad hoc solution is sort of there's an element a lot of times of improvisation in it improvisation it's like quickly put together to do to follow some sort of to find some sort of solution but it's like this specific thing it's not you can't generalize from it is that right precisely now this is interesting though russ you were just saying you know created for a particular purpose blah, blah, blah. i think that's why in my head i always 
take it another step, which is incorrect, and, and make it feel sort of like something that's jury-rigged. I think in my head, ad hoc seems sloppy somehow. I know that's incorrect, but I'm saying this is a case where I've been misusing it because for me, something that's ad hoc, I always feel like it's, it's somehow like just thrown together very slapdashedly, if there is such a term. That actually can be correct. It's in effect an improvised solution. So it can be done down and, I mean, down and dirty can really be a, a, a synonym for it. Impromptu. Interesting, okay. Improvisa- improvisational. I mean, it, it, it can have a sloppy, a sloppy feel to it. An ad hoc committee is quick. It can be quickly put together for the specific purposes. There are in effect two different definitions to some degree, with bleeding into each other, for specific mm-hmm. purpose or needs, or quickly done for a specific purpose or needs. Well, I got curious, so I looked it up, and I didn't realize also that it's used as a verb now. And when it's used as a verb, it is more of a pejorative term. When you say something's ad hocing. It's like it, it's it's more it, it is it does have the negative. I saw that in um, OED in the Oxford English Dictionary, which surprised me. I also never have heard it as a verb, frankly. I haven't either. I don't think. No, not at yeah. all. No, no. I wouldn't use it as a verb. Per- it sounds sort of ugly as a verb. Yeah. Well, I mean, they have an example here from ABC News in 2001. They seem to be almost ad hocing as they meet particular challenges rather than forming <laughs> a larger picture. It's just I want to start using it. I kind of like it. Actually, when you said it that way, though, it does give you like a real because how else would you say that? What would you say? They seem to be improvising, but improvising has a, a better term, has a better feel to it than ad hocking. Ad hocing does have a, a have a air of uh, pejoration to it. it. Does sound kind of nasty. Is, yeah, isn't it cool? Yeah, I like it. There's also ad hocery. Ad hocery. <laughs> the use or tendency to use ad hoc measures. Ad hocery. That I don't like. No, I do get the feeling that maybe people misuse this one often. I don't have I don't have certainly data to back me up on that. It's just a feeling that I have. But it it just seems like it's kind of tossed around a little more than maybe it ought to be. It's a big word in bureaucracy. I remember when I was in the State Department, they always had ad hoc committees and ad hoc this and ad hoc that. So maybe you're right. They were sort of tossing it out here and there. So you could be right on that. All right. One more I'm pretty sure I can do. And then, oh, boy, Um, we've got de facto, which is sort of like the real. um, Let me see how I want to describe this. Uh, If someone is the de facto head of state, they aren't actually the president in name, but they are the one who's running things behind the scenes. Uh, For example, the way people and. Please do not write in and be angry about this. I'm just I'm just describing how some people thought things were going. The way people describe Dick Cheney while George W. Bush was president. Maybe Cheney was the de facto head of state while while Bush was the president in name. That's nicely done. Yeah, de facto literally means in fact in reality. And then it's usually contrasted uh, contrasted with de jure, which means um which means literally in the law of the law. So you could say using your statement um, de Cheney may have been acting as de facto president, but Bush was the de jure president. He was the president in law. So that's completely correct. Okay. I wouldn't have been able to do the flip side. I would not have been able to say what de jure meant. See, that's the same with me. De facto is one I've run across a lot. And I've got to admit, de jure is something I, I don't, I can't really say I've seen it regularly at all. 
that's one of those I have to say from the State Department years. I mean, that's everywhere. <laughs> Ross the bureaucrat. See, this is fascinating me. It's either like bureaucracy or law. You figure these are where these things come up, huh? Those two were everywhere. De facto president. Like, I mean, actually with political context that, um, you know, an embassy cable you, cable, you would write, you know, this X is the de facto leader, but the de jure leader right all the time. So that immediately makes me want to scream, you know? <laughs> The U.S. has a, um, they did not recognize until China, you know, the People's Republic of China was not recognized as the leader, as the de jure ruler of China. It was Taiwan, if you recall, in the 60s. That was the leader. That was the de jure and the U.S. said de facto. But de facto, the people on the mainland controlled the country. So finally, de facto and de jure met and the U.S. recognized uh, People's Republic over Taiwan. But I'm going to be really boring. There's a de facto embassy in Taiwan. But it's not a de jure embassy because the U.S. does not recognize Taiwan as a separate nation. So they have an American interest section which behaves like a, an embassy. So you might say it's a de facto embassy. Wow. But I was go just going to say the one place I have seen de jure recently is when people uh, uh, are trying to say <laughs> soup de jour and they spell it soup de jure, which I assume <laughs> they don't realize is uh, legal soup. soup. Soup of the law. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Although there was a cafeteria in some law, uh, in some um, courtroom, that they offered soup de jure to jurors, which I thought was well, that's cool. cute. That's yeah. adorable. Was that on purpose? Yeah. Oh right. yeah, no, it was on purpose. Or, or was someone yeah. really bright or really dumb? <laughs> I hope it was on purpose. Now, now I'm gonna check. Well, I've had fun, uh, and now I'm about to drop off the table like <laughs> like oil prices did not so long ago. Because uh, we're getting to some that I, I'm just going to say them and then say I have no idea what they mean because, because that's the truth. I'm not even positive how to pronounce them. I want to stress that I have seen them, but I, I don't know what they mean. We'll move on to uh, sine qua non. Okay. Just see if you can tease it out. Try it. No, I can't even. I can't even. Um, I can't even do it. I can't do it. I'll give you a hint. You're usually the... How can we use that in a sentence about him, Ross? Quick, quick! <laughs> Fletcher is typically the sine qua non of this podcast. Yes, of the podcast. It's something that has no equal? Something essential or indispensable. Ah, okay. Without wit, and it literally means, sine means without, qua is which, non is not. Without which not. So without which not, so the it's essential, it's, it's extremely, it's essential. We have to have it. We cannot have the and podcast. It can't, yeah, it, it's like it's without without it, it cannot be. I mean, we had as a sample in um, awkward moments. This is a word that appeared in there, and um, the sample sentence we had uh, said that people were brunching before millennials were brunching. The art of Sunday brunch became a real thing in the '70s, and eggs Benedict became the sine qua non of brunch dishes, which is perfect. So it's like eggs Benedict sort of encapsulate brunch. They do for me still. It does. It still does for me, actually. I still... <laughs> yeah, I love Vex Benedict. I, I, I'm bougie. <laughs> I could see that being... What was the word that we talked about a few weeks back where people... Quintessential? Exactly right. That's what it was. I could see that being misused the way quintessential is misused. I think you're absolutely right, actually. This is another one, though, I think also that... 
because it sinequanon sounds sort of cool and i think that a lot of times people chuck it in without really thinking about it so yeah i think a la quintessential it, it's because i mean quintessential because sinequanon does mean something essential but it, it yeah no i think you can do, I, I wouldn't use it normally though i think it's a little too kind of uh highfalutin for me i kind of like it i gotta say there's something this is one that i who usually hate pretentious language like well incidentally if someone says sine qua nons which i guess would be correct because it's now an english word but you could correct them and say well i prefer the latin sine quibus non (laughs) i will definitely say that (laughs) (laughs) then someone's really gonna get mad at you (laughs) then you get punched in the face but whatever how to make friends (laughs) yeah (laughs) Well, uh, let's let's jump ahead to another one. You're gonna have to give me a sentence for uh, because I also don't know this. Uh, sui generis. Um, you pronounce it correctly. Did I? <laughs> <laughs> this is one that um, I see a lot, and and I have never known what it meant. I have to admit, until we wrote the book, I had no idea, and I don't know where I was seeing it, frankly. Although we did find when we were looking for samples that the Irish Times uses it a lot for some reason. I don't know why, but it means of its own kind. It's sui is of its own and generous is kind. And it began, like so many of these others, was mainly used in legal English initially. Um, But it's sort of, this is another one that kind of ends up being kind of like sine qua non, oddly enough, and quintessential in that in non-legal English, it's usually mean something unlike anything else. It's it's like a stand-in for unique. Sine qua non is like an essential thing. Sui generis is a unique thing. So you can't have too many. You cannot. You can have many sine qua nons. You can't have two sui generises. Oh. This is one I got to say that I think it shouldn't be used really. If we're going to weigh in on, because why not say unique instead of sui generis unless you're trying to impress somebody? What do you think? I'd like to hear a sentence that it's used in. Well, it's all over the Times a lot of times. The New York Times. Um, the Vatican. In effect, the Vatican is sort of like a commun- is sort of like a country, but it's sort of not like a country. It's not. It's not really a nation state, but it sort of is a nation state. It's unique. It's a sui generis entity. And then we also have this is from L.A. Magazine. Um, it says from the Irish Brit writer director of 2008's neglected In Bruges comes this sui generis chronicle of doomed characters caught up in a small town maelstrom of horror and deliverance. To me, that... See, but they're unique. Uh, I just want to put in a little plug for In Bruges also, by the way. That's a fantastic movie. Go watch that. <laughs> Is it? I've never seen it. Yeah, yeah, go watch that. I don't like this. I don't like Sweet Generous. I, I understand now why I've never bothered to look it up, because I would have just seen it in a sentence and rolled my eyes. I think that you should roll your eyes. <laughs> right. I'm not about it either. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah, can I just quote George Orwell, who is my, this is one of my favorite quotes about using uh, Latin when you oughtn't. He said, bad writers, and especially scientific, political, and sociological writers, are nearly always haunted by the notion that Latin and Greek words are grander than Saxon ones. And I think he's right, and I think that we oughtn't use it. Although I think sometimes he's wrong on using Latin words, because in that famous quote quotation, he mentions and criticizes the use of status quo, which is a Latin term, and I think status quo is great. So I think we, I think George okay, I like Orwell fifty percent of the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think we, I think, I mean, I think we all agree. Really, we need to like basically be careful with what we use. We don't want to confuse people. We don't want to show off our, our linguistic prowess. We want to be clear and communicate well. Etc. Uh, well, we'll close out with uh, possibly a slight let up for me, but I'm not 
completely sure. This is one I, I'm not positive that I know what it means, but maybe slightly more so than the last two, uh, which were just letters in my face. This one, Sub Rosa, and I, Sub, I'm guessing, is, is under... Uh, for some reason, I want to say this is something like undercover, but I'm not, uh, again, I'm not sure, like, secretively. Fletcher, 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 you're good. You hit it out of the park right? I don't know why. I can't think of where I would have seen it, but there's just there was a little voice in the back of my head that said something along those lines. It's ex- You got it exactly. It's literally, me. it literally in Latin means under the rose, but it means secret. It means you're holding a meeting sub rosa, you're having a secret meeting. And, and that's exactly what it means, and there's... The rose is linked from ancient times with the um, idea of silence. And supposedly the Romans used to put paint roses above the dining rooms um, of where when they were giving banquets. And that meant what happens here stays here. Don't talk about it in any other way. And it's kind of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Exactly. Right? <laughs> it's a modern soup Vegas, I guess we could say. Well, you know, that seems like a phrase that I don't really think we should use because we have plenty of alternatives. But that's such a beautiful explanation, Ross, that I really now I really kind of like it. I like it, too. I really do. I agree. I, I think it, it's very evocative and it, it sounds kind of cool. I know. I like it. I think it's I think we also should have fun with language. And I think in this case, it's fun. Let's use it. You know, Orwell may disagree, but then again, he's dead. So one thing that strikes me is wasn't this I looked it up on the uh, Google Books and Grand Viewer, you know, like when it's used, um, uh, you know, the charting, the use in published books. And it peaked in the 40s and it, and it has it, it came quite down. And it seems like it's kind of an uprise again. And I'm thinking like. I'm trying to think, when did I hear it? And wasn't it kind of like a James Bondy sort of thing? Like you'd hear about Sub Rosa meetings and stuff. I'm trying to remember why I, as a kid, knew this word. And I did, as a kid. I did too, actually, Kathy, when I think about it. Before Latin, I knew it anyway. Yeah. Maybe it was. I don't know. I wonder if it was like, because there were so many spy things, like the man from Uncle. Was that it? Because I feel like I really know this word, although I didn't know about the rose part. I love it. I think it should be used more often. I wonder if that's the case. I wonder if we were really concerned about secret societies and meetings, you know, with the communists hiding in our midst and whether that had anything to do with. Yeah, like the Cold War or something. Yeah. Interesting. I I don't know. I just made that up. But if if, if it peaked in the 40s, then that's not out of the realm of possibility. No. I'm just looking at John Le Carre, who wrote The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Did he have? Sub Rosen. I loved that book. Oh, I just found a quote. Red China maintained in Hong Kong. Sub Rosa, but with the full... Con- yes, they, he does use it. He uses it a couple of times here, I'm finding it. Okay, so maybe... Because, yeah, I think it's the whole spy thing is when we... Because I remember it, and I loved spy stuff as a kid. I mean, I still do when I'm an adult. You guys want to hear like a little tiny mistake that was made for this or not? It, it goes... The rose... Why is the rose a symbol of silence? It turns out from Greek myth... Aphrodite gave her rose to her son Eros, the god of love, or Cupid. He gave it to a guy called Harpocrates, or Horus. The Greeks took Horus into um, their own mythology. And they thought Horus was the god of silence. Why did they? Because a young Horus in ancient Egypt, and Kath probably remembers this because we grew up partly when our father was with the embassy in Egypt, the young Horus has his finger to his mouth. And it's supposed mm-hmm. to show in ancient Egypt that he's like a little baby sucking his finger. But the Greeks took it as like a shh sign. And from there, they got the idea that Horus was the god of silence. 
and the rose therefore symbolized it. Wow. That is That's really, cool. really cool. Yeah. But the one thing we don't know about sub rosa is how it got into English. Because the Romans didn't use sub rosa as a term. It was somehow, it appeared in the 1500s, no one knows why, in German and Dutch under the Unter der Rose, and then the English picked it up as under the rose. Then some scholars said, well, that doesn't sound good. We're going to make it Latin, so they put sub rosa. So, <laughs> wow, back to... Latin sounds good. Let's do that instead. Yep. Yeah, and that was back around Henry VIII time when that when it when it appeared in English, which is trying. I'm trying to figure out if there was some like tie with old Henry. I'm just thinking because there must have been a lot of secrets, a lot of sub Rosa activities in court. There's a supposed thing. I don't know if it's true, but the Tudor Rose Henry VII had a um, Tudor Rose in his chamber of his uh, where he made private decisions. So it could have come from there, mm -hmm. under the rose, Henry the Seventh, or yeah, whatever. that's what I'm wondering. And then you said, I, "Yeah, yeah, it could, could be." be. This episode of You're Saying It Wrong has been produced by me, Fletcher Powell, help from Beth Golay and Luann Stevens in the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. If you have a question for Kathy and Ross, you can tweet it at us. We're at YSIWpod or email me at powell at KMUW.org. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or even a review at Apple Podcasts. Those reviews really do help us a lot. The book, You're Saying It Wrong, was published by 10 Speed Press. And also be sure to check out Kathy and Ross's newest book, Awkward Moments. That's words, like what we're talking about. W-O-R-D-S, Awkward Moments. And of course, Kathy and Ross have written a lot more, and they're always up to something. You can check out their other work through their website, kandrpetras.com. That's K-A-N-D-R-P-E-T-R-A-S.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks.